0: Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the program. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Last week, I mentioned that we had our first 100-degree day here in San Diego, and the heat continued with high humidity throughout the weekend and on into the first part of the week. My wife and I bought a new house two months ago here in San Diego. So, on Friday night, with the temperature hovering around 100 degrees, we turned on the new air conditioner to make the place comfortable. Sure enough, the temperature inside the house dropped to 74 degrees and we had a really nice night's sleep. On Saturday morning, I woke up padded down the hallway on our new white oak floor, and I stepped into puddles. What? The central air conditioning in the attic was leaking water, and it was spilling down through the new canister lights in the ceiling. It was raining in the hallway. Well, that set the tone for the rest of the weekend. Calling the home warranty company, the home insurance company, and, of course, no one was there to answer the phone on the weekend, so I had to leave voice messages. And then we had company for dinner on Saturday night. Our friends from Istanbul, Turkey, Fadiq Kayrak and his family, whom I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago. It was beastly hot and clammy during their entire visit. Urgh. As I moved into Monday and hit the road to teach my four live classes in Carlsbad, La Cunada, Cyprus, and then back in San Diego, that was my weekly 500-mile teaching circuit, I had a lot of time in the car to think and to really put the entire weekend into perspective. I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, a time when the baby bloomers flourished. All of us born after World War II, when the men and women from the greatest generation returned from the war. It was a time of prosperity and plans for a bright future. And we all bought into the vision. And it was a vision defined by ever-continuing prosperity and material success. Not surprising, given that most of our parents grew up during the Great Depression having nothing, or worse, having lost everything. Why, my own father's family lost their car, their home, and the family itself. They were on the street, waiting in soup lines. The children, my aunts and uncles, were sent off to live with relatives because my grandfather literally could not feed them. Times were beyond tough. They were catastrophic. So after the war, with the booming economy of the 50s and 60s, it's no wonder that we became a materialistic culture. Turn on the TV, that newfangled invention, and we were inundated with advertisements, spokesmen hawking everything from new cars to cigarettes, aspirin, breakfast cereal, frozen dinners, each one guaranteed to make your life better, more comfortable, and more convenient. Spending on TV advertising, which was about zero in 1950, reached $12 billion per year in 1960, and the trend has continued to this very day. The Internet far exceeds the reach of TV in our day, and we're bombarded with targeted ads to very specific demographic groups thanks to Facebook and other forms of social media walk into a restaurant and half the people sitting at dinner are staring at their iPhones, including children under five who are playing video games while their parents totally ignore them. And every one of them is being conditioned to buy, to buy, to buy, and in doing so to become better than your friends and neighbors having all the best stuff. Well, as I pondered this, Here's what I realized, that success and prosperity brings happiness is the great American lie. Oh, if I could just have a better car, a a better wardrobe, a nicer house. If only my nose looked better or I had more hair, then I'd be happy. But it's a lie, my friends, a premeditated, deliberate lie one that drives consumerism, and one that creates a vapid, superficial, and morally bankrupt culture. Hey, I'm sorry to be so harsh, but there it is. If we look closely at Scripture, we see the truth of the matter. In Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, we read, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, eh, who needs the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Well, we see this at work today. A rabid, materialistic culture that rejects, indeed scoffs at God, and an American culture that produces the highest incarceration rate in the entire world three times that of Ecuador, four times that of Mexico and Venezuela, and five times that of China. Hey, there's something wrong here, people. Chasing the buck. Wanting the newest gadget. $700 torn and shredded designer jeans. Yes, I actually saw them online. $700, not just for torn jeans, but shredded jeans and an insatiable appetite for more and better does not lead to happiness and contentment but rather to stress and anxiety to sleep disorders and prescription drugs to deal with it all consider solomon now solomon had everything that anyone could ever want look at first kings chapter 10 verse 14 through chapter 11 at verse 3. Let me read it to you. The weight of the gold that Solomon received annually was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 bekkahs of gold went into each shield, He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minions of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Why, nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles of the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered eh, of little value in Solomon's day. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea, along with the ships of Hiram, king of Tyre. And once every three years it returned, carrying gold, silver, ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear his wisdom, the wisdom God had put into his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought gifts, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices. Oh, and Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. My goodness. And the list goes on. In chapter 11, King Solomon, however, loved many women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, They were from the nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Well, Solomon had just about everything that anyone could ever want. And how did that work out for him? How did he feel about it? Turn over to Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, then an old man. We read in Ecclesiastes, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And he continues in verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And you know what I learned? What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. So I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ever ruled over Jerusalem before. I have experienced much wisdom and much knowledge. And then I applied myself to understanding wisdom and also madness and folly. But I learned that this too, is chasing after the wind, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. So I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter I said is stupid, and what does pleasure accomplish? So I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the miserably few days of their very short lives. So I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings. I acquired men and women singers, and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. Why, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and in all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, I refused my heart no pleasure. And Truly, my heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me, all of it meaningless a chasing after the wind i hated all the things i toiled for because i must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool and yet he'll have control over all the work into which i've poured my effort and skill under the sun this is meaningless so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor For a man may do his work with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all that he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This is meaningless and a great misfortune. Well, (laughs) that's what Solomon has to say. You know, we spend so much time in our day stressing out about our day-to-day lives, about what's going on in the world about national politics, about business, and all the rest. And in the end, it's useless worry. One way or another, the world will go on. The blustering politicians of our day that we hear so much about on Fox, CNN, and MSNBC will be little more than footnotes in history, if that. Businesses will come and go. Why, in my lifetime, Only 60 of the Fortune 500 companies listed in 1955 are still on the list. And regarding you and me? For the most part, after three generations, no one will even know that we existed. Oh, your children remember you. Your grandchildren remember you. Maybe, if you're lucky, your great-grandchildren remember you. But by the fourth generation, no one will know you were even here. So get your priorities right, my friends. We're just pilgrims passing through this world. We step onto the stage of life. We walk across it in our 70 years or 80 if we're strong, as we read in Psalm 90, and then we step off it. We have a choice in how we live during the very brief time that we have in the spotlight. When St. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in late AD 62, a church that he dearly loved, he concluded his epistle by saying, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing what you've learned and received and heard from me, and then the God of peace will be with you. Yes, indeed. We have a choice in how we're going to live. As the Grail Knight said in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, choose wisely. Well, sorry about the rant, friends. I suppose if my air conditioning hadn't broken down, I'd be in a better mood. And recorded a different podcast. And oh well, there's always next week. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, back to the program. Here's Dr. Creasy. Welcome back, gang. It's time now to turn to your Bible questions. Hey, as most of you know, I'm on relevant radio nationally every Friday evening from 6 to 7 p.m. on The Joe Secora Show. Joe was one of my long-time Bible students back in the 90s at St. Monica's Parish in Santa Monica. Joe has been a movie stuntman, a Santa Monica cop, and now he's a marriage and family therapist with a daily two-hour nationwide Catholic radio program. Well, we're on hiatus during the month of July. Joe's on vacation. Uh, I'm working on other things. But we'll be back on the air in August. In the meantime, I'd like to recommend to you Joe's new book, Defying Gravity. It's a heartbreaking but ultimately inspirational story about how Joe and his wife Lori dealt with the devastating news that both of their sons, John and Ben, had Batten disease, a fatal childhood illness that would inevitably lead to blindness and death in their teens' Or early 20s. It's a story of tragedy, yes, but it's also a story of triumph, made possible by the compassion and mercy of God. It's a great read. You can find it on Amazon.com in paperback or as an audiobook. But when you read it, have a box of Kleenex handy. You're going to need them. Now, on to our questions. One of our podcast listeners asks. Why do we have four Gospels rather than one? And why do the four Gospels differ and sometimes even contradict each other? Well, that's a very good question. After Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the birth of the Church on Pentecost of AD 32, Jesus had commissioned his apostles to go out to the world and take the Gospel to the whole world. The whole world at that time meant the Roman Empire. And that's what they proceeded to do. Now how would you go about that if you were Peter, Andrew, James, John, or Paul? You wouldn't write a book and have it published and sold in the bookstores because written material was handwritten. Now you might write a gospel, but then you would have to give that copy to a scribe who would make one more copy, that would then go to another person who would make one more copy, and it would take, oh, about 2,000 years to get the gospel out. No, they didn't write the gospel message, they spoke the gospel message. They went out and they preached and they taught all throughout the Roman Empire. And truly, everyone in the first generation of the church, everyone, believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. He did say, after all, in the Olivet Discourse, that this generation will not pass away until all these things have occurred. So everyone expected him to return. There was an urgency to getting the message out, getting the gospel out to the world. And they did it by traveling from place to place, by teaching, and by preaching. But by the time we get to the AD 60s, that generation is beginning to die off. And people began to think, yeah, we better write this down or it might be lost. So Mark, our gospel writer Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, who traveled with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey, Mark probably wrote the first gospel sometime in the early to mid 60s. Mark wrote his gospel and then passed it on to someone who copied it, who passed it on, who copied it, who passed it on, and so on. A little bit later, maybe the mid-60s to the early 70s, Matthew, one of the apostles, also wrote a gospel. He had access to Mark, to what Mark wrote, because Oftentimes in Matthew, there are verses that are word for word straight out of Mark. But Matthew brought other material as well and included that in his gospel. Then, sometime in the early to mid-70s, Luke, who never met Jesus, Luke, who met Paul on the second missionary journey in Troas and stayed with him for 18 years, Luke wrote a gospel too. And he tells us that he thoroughly researched everything and is laying it out in an orderly fashion that we might understand it. So Luke had access to Mark, he had access to Matthew, and he had access to additional material that neither Mark nor Matthew had. Luke writes his gospel. Time goes on, and sometime in the late 80s or perhaps early to mid 90s, the last living apostle, John, writes his gospel. Now, John certainly knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were circulating in the Christian community. But as the last living apostle, the last living eyewitness to Jesus, John writes his gospel not to tell the story yet again, the story that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had told, but rather to tell what the story meant. John's gospel is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, synoptic, seen with one eye, but John's very, very different. So we have four gospels written across a period of time. Each gospel writer, Mark is a Jew writing primarily to a Gentile audience in Rome, Matthew is a Jew, an Apostle, writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and Luke is a Gentile writing to a specific person, a man named Theophilus. He will also write, Luke will also write, the Acts of the Apostles addressed to Theophilus, part two of his two-volume work. Now, all four Gospels tell the story. Now imagine If you were an eyewitness to a traffic accident, and there were many people who witnessed the accident, ultimately you're called into court to testify. And when each person testifies, they will have seen the event, the very same event, from a different perspective, a different angle, a different point of view, and they will filter it through their own experience. So four testimonies in court of the same event will inevitably differ. It's not that one person is lying, it's simply a matter of perception. And I think that's what we have in the Gospels. Four Gospels written by four very different people to four very different audiences for four very different purposes. And each Gospel will stress particular events from their particular perspective or point of view. Hence, four gospels that oftentimes differ most of the time they're right on the same page but often they differ and sometimes they even contradict each other so i think that's a pretty good answer to the question now we have another question one of our listeners ask what do you mean when you say scripture is inspired by god did god tell the writers what to say and what to write? Now that too is a very good question. If we turn over to St. Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 at verse 16. 2 Timothy is really Paul's last will and testament written to his young protege, the one he considers his son, who will take over Paul's ministry. And in 2 Timothy 3 at verse 16, Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. That word God-breathed, or the phrase God-breathed, is they are a-nusto, the nous tos. They are nous tos. They are That is, breathed by God. The Latin is inspirare. In is into. Spirare is to breathe. God breathed. Now, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by it? We'll turn over now to Second Peter. To so Second Peter. Peter's last letter. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 20, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit carried along by the Holy Spirit. Theomenoi. Picture Peter in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Peter, the master fisherman, Peter at the tiller steering the boat as the wind blew off the Mediterranean and took the boat eastward across the Sea of Galilee. How does the boat move and get to where it's supposed to be? The wind fills the sail and pushes the boat forward. Peter, the master sailor, at the tiller guides the boat to where it needs to go. The inspiration of Scripture is the very same thing it's the breath of God, if you will, filling the sail, and the writer, the author of Scripture, at the tiller, working together with the breath of God to steer the craft where it's supposed to go. I really like that image. But for both, Paul and Peter, all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed, inspired, inspired, breathed into. Now, I, I like that word, and I like the concept of inspiration. You know, the Irish poet William Butler Yeats wrote a wonderful poem titled Adam's Curse. And in Adam's Curse, Yeats begins, we sat together at one summer's end, that beautiful, mild woman, your close friend, and you and I, and talked of poetry. I said, a line will take us hours maybe, yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. Better go down upon your marrow bones and scrub a kitchen pavement or break stones like an old pauper in all kinds of weather. For to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these. And yet be thought an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters, and clergymen the martyrs call the world. A line will take us hours, maybe. But if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. We think of the authors of Scripture writing their story, or Paul writing his epistles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, writing their Gospels. The experience they had with Christ, how they knew Christ, their relationship with Christ, they express in words. And I know as a writer that it's hard work. It's hard work. And you can work. I have. Others have as well. Work on a sentence or on a paragraph to get it just right. And how do you get it just right? Well, it's a matter of skill. It's a matter of working at it. It's a matter of perseverance. But often it's a matter of inspiration. As you work the words, as you work the sentences, as you structure the sentences and the paragraph and the grammar and the style, ideas come to you out of the blue, as it were. They don't come easily, but they come. And and that's that's the idea of the inspiration of Scripture. These men writing the Scriptures struggled with it. While we study Paul's epistles in depth, we look at the rhetoric, the style, the the vocabulary, the grammar. Paul works meticulously at his writing. But at the very same time, God's breath is filling the sail, moving him in the right direction, inspiring him with exactly the right words. I think that's a good sense of what the inspiration of Scripture is. Not that God is dictating scripture and people are just copying it down. No, it's a team venture. The skill of the writer and the breath of God. So God bless all of you. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and logosbiblestudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.